was the American acting legend John Wayne who was attributed with these profound words. Life is hard, but it's harder if you're stupid. (laughs) Unrefined, yes. Appreciated frankness, I think so. Life is hard. Life is hard because we know that it's going to end. I know with every breath I breathe, I am one breath closer to breathing my last breath. And you know that too if you stop and think about it. According to the U.S. Census Bureau, 108 people die every minute in the world. It's 1.8 a second, 6,464 an hour, over 155,000 a day, over 4 million a month, 56 million plus a year. There aren't even a, there aren't even a million people in Omaha. 56 million to be exact, 622,740 are going to die this year. Life is hard because we know it's going to end and that makes it hard. Not only that life is hard because we're sick and we suffer and we watch people that we love suffer. People say, you know, if I die. It's not if I die. I chuckle inside when I hear that. It's when you die. And then we struggle with these other things too. Not only are our lives going to end, we live in a broken world. We live broken lives, broken relationships, broken ministry. Life is hard. John Wayne is right, and he wasn't the first one to figure that out. But it's even harder if you're stupid. Now, if that little effective word offends you, let's say ignorant. Okay? Life is hard, but it's even harder if you're ignorant. If you are ignorant about the reality of suffering, it's even harder. I've met people who have told me with a straight face because they apparently believe that there's no such thing as suffering. There's no such thing as pain. It's an illusion. I've met other people who have told me with a straight face, I never say the word suffering. And I say, just did. Anyway, I I never say the word suffering because if I say such a negative word, then perhaps negative things are going to happen and I'm going to suffer. Life is hard, but it's harder if you're ignorant about the reality of suffering. Or if you're, you're ignorant about the fact that God tells us in His Word that as Christians, there's even an extra dose of suffering. There's an extraordinary kind of suffering that you're going to experience if you're a Christian. Life is hard, and it's even harder if you're ignorant of the fact that God wants us to be encouraged and sustained by His promises amidst the suffering. And that's what we're seeing in Romans chapter 8. Look with me at Romans eight seventeen, where we have a promise of suffering in this world amidst the security of the chapter, amidst all the blessings and all the wonderful things that we have in Christ. And in 8.17, it's talking about those things. It says, If children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ. And it's all this wonderful, great news about what it means to be in Christ, provided we suffer with Him, in order that we may also be glorified with Him. There is a cross before the crown, as the song said. And then in the verses that follow, in 18 and following, he gives us all of these wonderful promises, all of these assurances that build us up so that we don't have to be stupid about suffering, so that we can cope with suffering, so that we can deal with suffering in a way that sustains us and in a way that brings glory and honor to Christ who saves us, who saved us. So what we're doing right now is we're looking at Romans 8, 18 to 30, And we're highlighting six sure sources of encouragement. Six sure sources of encouragement for us as Christians because we've been promised suffering. And we need to be encouraged. And we don't want to be ignorant about the reality of the suffering. We don't want to be ignorant about the way to handle the suffering. And so this is encouraging to us. Believers have cherished Romans chapter 8 for centuries. Ever since the the first believers received it, no doubt ever since people have had Bibles that they own themselves, this has been one of those 
wonderfully worn sections because it gives us encouragement to deal with reality. And I'm hoping and praying that this becomes a worn section of your Bible if it's not already so that you can face reality but face it with a way that, in a way that exalts Christ and a way that allows you to live a successful Christian life. The first assurance or sure source of encouragement for Christians that will help bolster you, build you up, and help you to deal with these issues, let's limit it to one word, is the word glory. The word glory. We've already looked at these first two. I'm just going to quickly review them, and then we'll move on to two more. Glory. What I mean by that is what we're going to see in 8.18. It's talking about future glory, that we're going to be glorified, that we're going to one day enter into the fullness of our salvation and we're going to see Christ, we're going to be made like Christ and we have that promise and that motivates us as an assurance so that we can deal with the here and now. Look at 8.18 with me if you would where the Apostle Paul says right after telling us we're going to have suffering if we're really Christians, 17, then 18, for I consider, I calculate it this way in my mind, that the sufferings of this present time Notice he's not in denial about the reality of suffering. The sufferings of this present time, of this age, are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. It's really easy what he's getting at. You know what? It doesn't even compare. I know you're going through hard times. I could give you a whole list of hard times I've experienced. I know what it's like. It doesn't even compare. Think about the glory that is to come where you will be perfected, where you will see Christ, you'll be made like Christ. 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, and, and there'll be no more suffering and there'll be no more struggling and everything will be as it should be. Meditate on that. Think on that and that will help get you through the reality of the suffering of the here and now. That's to give us encouragement. Let's move on to the second, again by way of review. Number two, a second assurance or sure source of encouragement, is creation. Creation. More specifically, the testimony of creation. More specifically, the created order, the universe around us. Theologians call it general revelation. As you look around and as you, as you see the mountains and as you see uh, the, the sun setting and as you see uh, the field that you're impressed with and you see the, whatever you happen to see in creation, and more specifically, as you see things that, that look broken in creation... Where where you see death, and you see chaos, and you see turmoil, just know that creation, like you, is waiting. Waiting to be fixed. Waiting to be restored. And that's supposed to encourage us. Look at 19 with me, if you would. For the creation waits with eager longing, anticipation, for the revealing of the sons of God. The revealing of the sons of God, that's, that's synonymous with the glory that we just saw. They're, they're awaiting the creation. He's using this, this metaphorical language. You know what? It, it's, if, the, if creation could speak, this broken world, it, like you, is waiting. And creation is waiting for you to be restored because creation is even smarter than some people. Creation knows that with the restoration of the human race comes the restoration of the planet. The reversal of the Genesis 3 curse. Let's keep reading about it. He explains why this is so. Verse 20, For the creation was subjected to futility or vanity or aimlessness. As the NIV says, frustration. Not willingly, but because of Him, God, who subjected it. Verse 20 is talking about Genesis 3, 16 to 19. We learned about this in Romans 5 as well. The, the fixing of the planet, the restoration of the planet, because it's broken as a result of Adam and Eve and sin. It's eagerly waiting. Look at verse 20 at the end. In hope, and then 21, that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory, the perfection of the children of God. Then verse 22 says, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Application point? Look at broken creation. I say just look at creation. And when you do, be reminded that there is this inaudible longing, groaning. Please, Lord, bring restoration. Please, God, bring restoration. Fix, undo what was done, Genesis 3. 
And creation knows that that is tied to the restoration of the human race. So, I don't know about you, but this has not been a big ministry in my life. I haven't found a lot of encouragement here. just haven't thought about it. So you're going through the dark times. You're going through the difficulties. You know, some of the other things are more obvious. And I'm thinking about Christ. I'm thinking about the glory that is to come. There's a new source. It's not new, but it's new to me because I've been ignorant. I've been stupid. A new source of encouragement. You know, look at the broken planet around us and know that there's something even in creation that says, God, please bring about the restoration of humanity because with that will come the restoration of the universe. I have a new appreciation for the ministry of general revelation in my life. And you should too. But I was ignorant of it before. Life is hard, but it's even harder if you're stupid. Right? Don't worry, I won't even try to do a John Wayne impression. It would be horrible. Let's move on to some new stuff. Number three, a third sure source of encouragement for you to be equipped to deal with the tough stuff of your life. In one word, it's hope. It's hope. In more than one word, it's hope for entering into the fullness of your salvation. Hope for experiencing all that has been promised to you in Christ. That which you haven't experienced yet, but you know you're going to experience it because of what Christ has already secured for you on the cross. Hope. Before we get to the text, remember, hope in the Bible, hope in Romans 8 specifically, is different than the way we use hope a lot of the time. Not always. But a lot of times we say, you know, I hope I win a million dollars in the lottery. It's really tough for me because I've never played the lottery, so it's extra complicated. But the idea is, it's wishful thinking, it's fanciful thinking. You know, you, you know don't be stupid, you're not going to win the lottery, more than likely. <laughs> but that's, that's a wish, it's fantasy. It's, it's not even close to probable for that to happen. But some of, that's how we use it most of the time. Sometimes in, in our vernacular, in our speech, we say hope and we, we mean something more like Romans 8. We're talking about something that is sure, that we have a high level of confidence about. You know, once Molly and I were engaged and someone were to say, so, you know, do you hope to marry Molly? Well, yes, I hope to marry Molly or, or I hope to marry her. Well, that's because we already have a relationship. I already, she's already said yes, you know. And, and, we, and, and there's a ring to prove it, you know, money on the table. I mean, <laughs> there's, there's actually something objective to give me a sense of sureness that this is going to happen. That's more the idea when we're talking about hope in the Bible. Something has happened that gives us a strong sense that more is going to happen. Now, engagements break up and, and they're broken off, so it's not a perfect analogy. What we're going to talk about is hope that is grounded and founded upon the finished work of Christ that is already done. Therefore, He has already secured all of our even yet future restoration. So when we're talking about Christian hope, we're talking about Christian assurance. We're talking about Christian, better yet, certainties. Things that are going to happen because everything that needs to be done to make sure that they're going to happen have already happened. And so that's what we're going to see here. We're supposed to be encouraged amidst the, 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 the turmoil, amidst the, the complexities of life, amidst the sufferings of life. We should have hope. We should have a sure confidence that we will one day enter into the fullness of our salvation. And we should be encouraged by that. Take a look at verse 23. And not only the creation, not only does the groaning of creation with eager anticipation and longing, not only does that happen, not only should that encourage us, and not only creation, but we ourselves, in verse 23, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly 
as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Now that's a mouthful, and we'll take it piece by piece, but let's just see, first of all, when we look at verse 23, even though he doesn't use the word hope yet, he's clearly talking about the hope we just talked about. We wait eagerly. There's this strong anticipation for this to happen. We're hopeful. We're confident. We're looking forward to this happening. We're longing for full restoration. We've been saved, but you know what? We're waiting for that ultimate salvation where we don't struggle with sin anymore and we don't experience suffering anymore. Do notice that it's supernatural, that it's not natural. This isn't natural because it comes to us, look at verse 23, who have the first fruits of the Spirit. I have this longing inside of me if I'm a Christian because I have already received the first fruits of the Spirit and that causes me to have this kind of longing. You know what? Even the longing that I have brings me assurance because I've received the first fruits of the Spirit that causes me to long for the hope of heaven and all the blessings that come with it. Now, first fruits is not something that we use. Obviously, it's from agriculture. Easy to understand. It's the fruit that comes first. In Greek, <laughs> it doesn't take a rocket science to figure this. Scientists to figure this out. The first fruits. It's the foretaste. It's the sampling that the fruit is good, and it's the sampling that shows a down payment, a promise that there's going to be a harvest. That would be the image of first fruit. It shows commitment. It shows a certainty that there's more to come. And it's this good, if not better. That's the image he's borrowing. It's a great image. So we have this longing for something more, for the completion of our salvation. And and where does that come from? It comes from the fact that we've received the first fruits of the Spirit. We've had a taste. We've had a sampling. Interestingly enough, on a technical note, in all seriousness now, Some grammarians tell us that that little statement there, the first fruits of the Spirit, would be better translated, the first fruits which is the Spirit. And let's at least start by dealing with it on that level. You know, I'm, I'm longing for heaven amidst all the suffering. And one of the reasons I'm longing for heaven is because I have received the first fruits. I've received the first fruits which is the Spirit. I have the Spirit of God. I have a sampling. I've received the Spirit of God. When I was converted, I received the Spirit of God. And that then causes me to say, Lord, this is really good. This is great. I have Your Spirit. And and you know what? He regenerated me. I was spiritually dead. And and He gave me spiritual life, a la John chapter 3. So I've gone from being a spiritually dead person to a spiritually alive person. This is radical. God, this is a great taste. And not only that, have I received His Spirit, His Spirit brings conviction in my life in a unique and special way as a Christian that I didn't have before as an unbeliever. You know, 20 years of my life, spiritually dead, no real conviction. And now all of a sudden, for the last 20 years, even though I'm not where I want to be because I'm longing for it, the the second 20 years of my life, I've had the Spirit. I've had the the first fruits. I say, God, I I, I want more. I want out of this place. And if what's to come, you know, is just better because I've just had a sampling, then this is a good deal. And I can face the tough time. And then you have all that comes with having the Spirit, right? Then you do have the fruit of the Spirit and you have love and you have joy and you have peace and you have patience and you have kindness and you have gentleness and you have self-control. Which one did I miss? Goodness? What? You weren't listening. I'm kidding. <laughs> I must have missed several is what that's telling me. And uh, first hour I miss goodness and it's because there's no good in me. But that's a different theological conversation. Actually, there is some goodness. Where did the goodness come from? Not because I'm good in and of myself, but I've received the first fruits. I've received the Spirit. So now there, there is some self-control. And there is some goodness. And there is some love. But it's not where it should be or I wouldn't have the longing, Right? Part of this whole thing is my frustration with not being where I need to be. But I've had a taste. I've experienced the first fruits, and so have you if you're a Christian. This is all about hope. God, if this is the appetizer, and now I realize I'm going further than the Bible's gone at this point in time, but but for the sake of understanding, I mean, I can't wait for the main course. (laughs) This is really good. 
can't wait. And it really helps me to deal with the stuff that doesn't cause me to smile and the stuff that's not even close to funny that I have to go through in this life because of my own sin, because of the sin of other people. I have hope. And the hope comes from the Spirit because I've received the Spirit, and that's just evidence of the coming harvest. Isn't that good? It's great if you're a Christian because you know what I'm talking about. Then he goes on to explain. Verse 23, we're longing for something. He says toward the end of the verse, we're groaning inwardly, eagerly waiting for adoption as sons. Now, if you have a a decent memory, unlike me, you're thinking, wait a minute. We're longing, waiting, having tasted, having received the first fruits, we're longing and waiting for adoption as sons. That is the one who will inherit all the blessings, whether you're a man or a woman, a boy or a girl, a son. This is for believers. And you say, wait, we already learned earlier in Romans chapter 8 that we're already sons. When you're converted, you become a son. And you're right. Look look with me at Romans chapter 8. We're going to put the two together today, but look at Romans 8. 14, and all who are led by the Spirit are sons of God. See, that's talking about a current reality. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. That's a present reality. Verse 16, the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, and, and so on. And we'll stop there. Now, if it wasn't in the same chapter, you might be thinking, what? No doubt this is on purpose. We're longing and groaning, yes, to become sons. We are sons. Both are true. When I believe in Christ, by the grace of God, God treats me as a son. He treats you as a son means you're the, the inheritor of the privileges. But you haven't entered into the fullness of that sonship yet because you still live on a fallen planet, fallen body, broken stuff all around you. You have the promise, but you haven't experienced it all yet. This is what Bible teachers for years have been referring to, the reality of already, but not yet. And it's clear, and it comes up multiple times in different ways in Scripture. And this is one of them. You're already a son based upon the work of Christ. And you're not yet a son because you haven't entered into the fullness of the sonship yet. Remember earlier we talked about how hope is based upon something objective that is sure, that has already been done, and it's not wishful thinking? This goes to support that argument. I'm longing to enter into the fullness of my privileges as a son of God. And, And so are you if you're a Christian, especially when you're going through the garbage. Well, what makes you so sure it's actually going to happen? Well, how about early in Romans 8? I'm already called the Son based upon the work of the Son. We're not talking about wishful thinking. We're talking about what Christ secured, this great already not yet reality. You've got to love it. It has sureness just, just dripping from the sentences. This is that 1 John 3, 2 reality. We'll see Christ and we'll be made like Christ. There's a similar promise. We won't take the time to go there, but you can jot down Ephesians 1, 13 to 14. Who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it? So we have the Spirit who's the guarantor of it, but we haven't acquired the possession of it yet. There's another already not yet reality in verse 23. You can see it at the very end of the verse. We wait eagerly for adoption as sons. And then he says, the redemption of our bodies. Same thing. We've already been redeemed. And if you've been to you know, Omaha Bible Church more than about probably three or four times, you know what redemption is. It's, it's where, where Christ, based upon His work, He's bought us out of the slave market of sin. You've been redeemed. You're not waiting to be redeemed. If you're a Christian, you have been redeemed. Redemption is tied to the actual work of Christ on the cross. But here, we're waiting for redemption. 
because we haven't entered into the fullness of what it means to be redeemed yet. The redemption of our bodies. Again, for the sake of time, you could just jot down Ephesians 1, 7. In Him we have redemption, current reality, Ephesians 1, 7. But Ephesians 4, Ephesians 4, 30 says, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Ultimate redemption. Now, I don't want to lose sight of the forest for the trees. The big idea is we have hope as believers that something is waiting us which is the fullness of all that is ours now because of Christ. Full redemption. Full privileged sonship. And you're going through the valley as the song said and you think, I am looking forward to entering into fullness of my sonship and full redemption where I don't have to deal with any of this garbage anymore. And what is that tied to? It's tied to your current status as son, which is tied to the work of Christ and His redeeming work. It all goes back to there. Remember Romans 8, the big picture too? I can't help but mention this. It starts with 8.1 and following, which tells us all about the work of Christ. So all of this is designed ultimately to glorify Him and bring exaltation to Him, but to encourage us along the way. Don't be stupid, right? Be aware of these things because these are the things that are going to get you through. Before we move on, somewhat related to this, I appreciated what John Stott said about this passage in commenting on it. He said, Some Christians grin too much and groan too little. I thought that was worth at least pausing and thinking about. Some Christians grin too much and groan too little. Yes, we have joy. Yes, we have happiness. Absolutely, because of these promises. But if it's just always, everything is wonderful. Your life is falling apart. Your health is horrible. You're going to die. Everything's good. It's going to have a positive self-image and positive attitude. Because I'm a Christian. Wait a minute, you know? Hold on. You know, it's one thing to have joy in the Lord, but you know what? There's something in you because you are still broken because you haven't entered into this fullness and you live in a broken world that is groaning and longing for something better, not the here and now. There should be some groaning or you're living in denial. And you know what John Wayne would say about that. <laughs> Don't be stupid. There's a place for us to be groaning or we're completely just ignoring reality. doesn't mean we're self-consumed moaners and groaners. But the groaning causes us to think about what is to come. It causes us to think about what Christ has done. Before we move on to this next one, and we can do that rather quickly, before we move on, we have to deal with verses 24 and 25. And I think what 24 and 25 do is offer a corrective about hope. We're still talking about hope. And there seems to be a corrective here for us. There's a tendency for us as Christians to think about this the wrong way. Look at 24 where it says, For in this hope, this, this confident longing for completion based upon the finished work of Christ, in this hope we were saved. And, and I read that as some others do as well, is, is, is a bit of a corrective as happens sometimes in Romans. You know, it's in this hope for the future of the fullness of your salvation, that we were saved. In other words, don't lose sight of the big picture of what salvation is all about. You know what? When you were saved, it was with this future look of future ultimate fulfillment of sonship and ultimate redemption of your body. That's how it is when you get saved unless... The gospel is really convoluted. I mean, think about it. When you got converted, you look back to when you got saved. People were talking to me about God and heaven and hell and my sin and eternity. It's pretty straightforward. And I realized, and it was made clear to me, I'm thankful that that has to do with the here and now and my standing before God. But it, in the long run, it's going to have to do with eternity. Heaven, hell, restoration, judgment. I'm not telling you anything you don't know. But here's what happens sometimes. 
as Christians, we start not thinking about our salvation, let's say, in a holistic sense. Let me use a New Age word, borrow it. And uh, <laughs> the word's not bad. It's good in a biblical sense. As Christians, we somehow lose sight of how we got saved. We start thinking about, well, I'm a Christian. Why am I sick? I'm a Christian. Why am I suffering? I'm a Christian. Why does my body hurt? Remember when you got saved. Your, your, your hope was primarily, I would imagine, dealing with the future. You know, the promise isn't health, wealth, and prosperity here, or you didn't hear the gospel or didn't believe the gospel. He's saying, hey, remember, you, you, you got saved in this hope, this hope that ultimate sonship is still for the future. Ultimate redemption for your body is in the future. Remember the gospel that you heard and you believed in. Stop functioning like a health and wealth and prosperity guy. Remember. Remember when you were saved. For in this hope we were saved. I need to remember that. And I would imagine you do too. Hope for us. Yes, it's here and now. Great blessings in being a Christian. I'm so thankful I can live a Christian life here and now. And it's been wonderful I'm waiting. I'm longing for something even better because you know what's in the here and now? The first fruits. The harvest isn't in the here and now. But when you're ignorant, it's the nice word, about that, you're not very good at suffering like a Christian that honors Christ. Neither am I. First fruits now, harvest later. Class, got it? <laughs> you know. Remember, you were saved with this hope, which puts the harvest in the future. Okay, got to think about the future as I deal with this. Now, to help us understand that, he tells us what hope isn't, and then he tells us what this hope does in verse 24 or 25. 24 goes on to say, Now, now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? And then that's what hope isn't. And then he goes on to say, but here, the hope I'm talking about, it does something. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. I want to say something more about we wait for it with patience in a moment. But go back to the end of verse 24. Now hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees. Pretty straightforward if you just stop and think about it. This might help. In God's wisdom, He did not design salvation, though He designed it holistically. He didn't design salvation to give you the harvest in this life. You get the first fruits, which is the Spirit. It's a, bit, it's a good deal, <laughs> right? But God designed salvation. And you could do it a different way. Once you become God... Um, which isn't going to happen. Um, if you were God, you might do it differently. We're all thankful you're not God. Um, but if you were God, you might do it differently. But God in His perfect wisdom designed salvation this way. You taste the first fruits in this side of eternity, in this broken planet, but the harvest is coming later. Full sonship comes later. You enter into that later. Full redemption even of your body comes later. And He was wise in doing this because it actually impacts your living in the here and now in a pretty radical way. Because in verse 25 it says, But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. It's a little bit weak wording. It's a military image. We stand alert. We're, we're at attention. We're zealous. We're eager. We're paying attention. That's what this kind of hope is. See, we're waiting for the harvest. We're longing for that. We're, we're anticipating that time. And it impacts the way we live our lives in the here and now, this hope does. Because we haven't seen it yet. We've been promised it. We know it's going to happen because of the object work of Christ. We haven't actually seen it yet. And so it causes us to get through the trial. And it causes us to be productive during the trial. Because we are longing in this unique and special way. 
If you see it, it's not hope. God wants hope because hope means productivity. Not a good, perfect illustration. But think about something that you hope for and therefore you look for and you're waiting for even though you haven't seen it before and you have a high level of confidence that it's actually there. Here's my shot at it. First time I bring our kids or one of our kids way back when to Colorado driving. You're on the interstate. A lot of you have experienced this. You're driving on the interstate. You're going toward Colorado. You're getting close. And you say, look for the mountains, kids. And now all of a sudden the bickering stops. You know, the, I got to go to the bathroom stops. You know, all the non-productive stuff stops. And now everybody's looking for the mountains, you know. They think, you know, if they're small, they think the Sinclair Station dinosaur are the, are the mountains. I mean, they're just looking, paying attention, just longing for this to happen. They're, they're at alert. And we'll have a contest. Whoever sees the mountains first, you know, gets an ice cream cone or something because this is good and it's really distracting everybody so they're productive and not counterproductive. Anyway, so now their level of confidence is high because their mom or their dad is telling them about this and we have a good track record with them already because we're the mom and the dad and we don't make a habit out of deceiving our kids. So they really think there are mountains there. They're convinced there are mountains there. In fact, we may have even shown them pictures of mountains in the past, but they've seen it on TV. They know there are mountains there. This isn't an illusion. It's real hope. And then they see the mountains, and there they are. Not a perfect illustration, not a perfect analogy, but God says, you know what? Full sonship is coming. Full bodily redemption is coming. And we take Him at His word because He's got a pretty good track record. Okay? He's been telling us the truth, you know, all the time. Uh, he's shown us some pictures, if you will. He's described it in pretty illustrative ways. And so we're longing and we're waiting. And it's motivating. It's motivating so we're doing the right things. And we have a right perspective. And we're not stupid about suffering and what's going to come and how to handle suffering. But he puts it in the future for one reason, one reason is because it makes us productive. We'd already seen it, already experienced it, no big deal. You're leaving the mountains, back to bickering. There's something still in the future. It's the harvest. When we enter into the fullness of our sonship, God is wise in doing this and giving us a salvation that includes hope. It's to encourage us. Let's move on to number four, and we'll do this one quickly, and then we'll be done for today. Next time, I can't wait for next time. It sounds bad to say. It's as if I can wait for this. But anyway, next time, we're going to look at five and six, and we're going to talk about providence. Romans eight twenty eight. God causes all things to work together for good to those who love Him and those who have been called according to His purpose. Remember, isn't that a great verse? We all love it, but it's in the context of how do you deal with suffering? Providence, how God is working, not necessarily miraculously even, he is working in the details. Good, good, good. Can't wait for that. We'll spend at least one week on that, if not 57 weeks. <sighs> Just kidding. And then after that, we'll look at 29 and 30. We'll look at sovereign grace. It's a good way to encapsulate those verses. God's sovereign grace, which is designed not to be about controversy. It's designed in the context of how do you deal with suffering? That God has a plan, and it's going to happen. Licking my chops. Can't wait. You know what? I've been praying for you that you'll be receptive so that you can be built up to deal with the difficulties of life because that's what this is about. And you can pray for me that I can be impressed with Christ and have it not just be a sermon. You can pray for one another that this is uh, impactful because this is the kind of stuff that's designed to actually help us to deal with real life and to not be stupid about suffering. I could stop now, but I did this point in the first hour, so I have to do it in the second hour. So <laughs> let's do this one quickly. The last one for today, number four, is intercession. Intercession, not a word I don't think I ever used till I became a Christian. might be new to you. Um, it's not exactly the same word, but for those of you who are just former thugs like me, um, think of interception. <laughs> okay, You all know what that is. You throw an interception, the other team gets it. Well, it's not exactly the same, but we're starting to get close. Intercession, it's you're doing something for someone else. 
interception is a bad concept. This is actually a good concept. You're doing something for someone else. If you intercede for someone, you go, you go and help them. We're going to see that the Holy Spirit of God intercedes for us. And as you'll see, actually, interception isn't so bad uh, of a word to use when it comes to this, but we'll get there in a second. But He prays for us. Broken life, broken world, don't always know how to pray. The Spirit of God prays for us, and that should encourage us. And we're going to see why. This is, this is cool to see. Look at verse 26 with me, if you would. Likewise. So we're sustained by the nature of Christian hope. Likewise, like that, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. I like it, first of all, to acknowledge the obvious, our weakness. Okay, The Apostle Paul was well aware that we are weak in this world. Don't believe anybody who tells you you're not weak in this world. He helps us in our weakness. Okay? If this was your best life now, you wouldn't need any help. Okay? He helps us in our weakness. Read 2 Corinthians. Weak, 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 weak. God wants you to be weak so He can show you how strong He is. This is foretaste, right? This is a sampling. Best life later. So He helps us in our weakness and He's going to show us how He does that through this intercession Ministry. Look with me at verse 26 where we go on to see, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. Verse 26 then says, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Let's keep reading for now. And He who searches hearts, that would be God Himself, knows what the mind of the, knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. We'll stop, but let's go back and kind of pick up some of those details. I want to look at the big picture first. You have a huge weakness. And that weakness is the same weakness I have, and that is you're not sovereign. (laughs) You're not God. You don't know what tomorrow brings. Therefore, it impacts your prayer life. I don't know how to pray. And you don't know how to pray either. Now, we know how to pray to a certain degree. You know, the the Bible is clear that, that Satan is going to be cast into the lake of fire. It burns forever and ever, right? So I don't say, Lord, please, you know, save Satan. Well, that would be stupid <laughs> because it goes against what God says in His written revelation. Um, I, I don't pray for things I know the Bible says the exact opposite. That doesn't make any sense. But there are a lot of things we deal with in life, in this context, in suffering, that, that we don't know what the will of God is. So you've got Christians being persecuted in Iran. They're in jail, and you pray for them. Please do pray for them. And I pray for them. But I don't know exactly how to pray. Pray that they get released. But then I might be thinking to myself, you know what? Well, God's sovereign plan might be for them to die. Maybe he's going to use it like, like at the hands of sinful men, obviously. Maybe he's going to do like he did with Stephen in the early chapters of the book of Acts. And you know what? That just sets the church on fire and it actually works out better in the long run. I don't know exactly how to pray for those guys and gals. You get bad news from the doctor? Pray for healing. It's normal. But depending on the news, you know what? It might not be... In the cards. I don't know. This could be paralyzing. By the way, if you don't struggle with this as a reality and and, and you're not looking for a solution to this, it's it's probably because you don't pray. Okay? Those of you who are praying are going, yeah, this makes sense. The rest of you are going, what's up with this? If you just pray, we're called to pray for all things. We're called to pray without ceasing that... If you're a person who prayer, pray, prayers, if you're a person who prayers, you'd be tired, needing more caffeine and sustenance. It's kind of hard. And in the context of suffering and persecution and that kind of stuff, which is Romans 8 is dealing with, I don't, I don't know how to pray for this. So you pray to the best of your ability and you say, Lord willing, a lot. <laughs> what this is getting at is, You don't know the will of God. That's implied in verse 27. The Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. 
Oh, this takes a huge load off of my mind. So I'm going to pray that those uh, men and women in Iran get, get released. If that seems to be the best thing to pray for. I have a Lord willing attitude. That would be biblical. But you know what? If they don't release them, I'm going to Romans 8.28. But you know what? I don't think somehow I insulted God by praying in a way that wasn't according to his sovereign decreed will because I didn't know what it was. I'm not God. But the Spirit of God who resides in me intercedes for me. And he knows the mind of God as the third person of the Trinity. This is encouraging. Now, I don't know exactly how this works. Is this, I pray, and then, you know, it gets translated, and by the time it gets there, it's the, it's the right way? Or is it, I pray, and it's separate, and the Spirit prays, and His override mine? I mean, I don't know. If it's the former, I like to relate it to being translated into, into a different language. And, you know, people say lost in translation. I think it's pretty good to have certain things lost in translation. Like my ignorant praying. You know, pray without ceasing, but I'm not God and sovereign. I don't know what's going to happen according to all of everything that he's planned. So I pray and uh, the stuff that's wrong gets lost in translation. Because the Spirit of God translates my prayers and by the time it reaches the throne of God, if this is how it works, it's all fixed. That's pretty cool. Now you might say, well then why even pray to begin with? Because God says to. So we do. And it shows our dependence. And God is honored. But I've got the deluxe, ultimate, best, unmatched prayer partner. Spirit of God. So do you if you're a Christian. Lord, I, I want you to take this sickness away. It would be your will. You know what? The Spirit of God intercedes you with you and He knows what the perfect will of God is. And if it means you're going to make a bigger splash for the glory of God in this life by losing your life shorter than longer, sooner than later, that's what's going to happen. It's good. It's comforting. It's encouraging. Spirit of God prays for us. He knows the mind of God. Just as an aside before we're done, but related to this, I, I skipped it. And I didn't want it to get in the way. There's a lot of debate about what this means in verse 26. The Spirit intercedes with groanings too deep for words, and there's a battle that goes on because some Christians say that's speaking in tongues. And other Christians say that's not speaking in tongues. And the problem is, what we do is we fight about what it is and then we're not encouraged by what it does. You know? So, okay. The Spirit groans. We don't. In a way that's too deep for words, so apparently it's inaudible. Two strikes against the tongue's view. Another strike against the tongue's view, which is the slam dunk. According to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, not all Christians speak in tongues because we're gifted differently. Some have this gift, others have that gift. Romans 8 is talking about all Christians. The Spirit of God groans and intercedes with them with groanings too deep for words. This is universal to all Christians. Three strikes, you're out. That's not the view. Okay? Tongues are talked about in 1 Corinthians 12. The groanings of the Spirit that are too deep for words. Romans 8, two different animals, two different things. But here's the problem. I feel pretty good about my argument, pretty confident about it. There you go. I know what Romans 8 doesn't teach. And that's kind of the end of it a lot of times in our circles. Yep. I'm pretty encouraged to admit suffering because I know what Romans 8 doesn't teach. <laughs> How dumb is that? You know, I'm just encouraged by my own, you know, ego or something. So what I did before we got to the interpretive issues is I just jumped ahead and went ahead. What's, it, what's the point? The point is you don't know how to pray because you don't know the sovereign will of God. And the Spirit of God intercedes for you because He does know. And so you should be encouraged amidst the difficulties. It's going to work out. 
God is helping you. And I love this. I love it that inside me dwells the Spirit who prays for me. Even though I pray, He prays for me because He knows the sovereign will of God. And then if we were to take the time to go to Hebrews chapter 7, I would learn that Christ the Son is in the throne room of God interceding on my behalf too. I'm a Trinitarian project. Okay? And it's going to work out. He's the all-knowing one. It's done. It's taken care of. The plan of the Father to send the Son, the work of the Son applied by the Spirit, and then I've got intercession by the Spirit, intercession by the Son, working with the will of the Father. I'm pretty sure (laughs) about this whole thing, and I'm pretty sure, therefore, I can handle difficult stuff in life even though I'm not asking for it. Because if God is for us, as we will see later in Romans chapter 8, who could be against us? Nobody could be. Nobody could be. Providence next time and sovereign grace following that. And uh, we'll have a great time for the next year looking at those two subjects. Pray with me. Father, thank you so much for this morning. And thank you even that we can laugh at times about things. Uh, for a little relief because uh, this, this passage is in the context of something very, very heavy. It's great, Lord, to know that this is applicable to every single person who's here or who's listening. We can all relate because we've all gone through difficulties and hardships. And we will continue until we see you and are made like you. At the same time, Lord, there are those who seem to receive an extra dose, an extra measure of grief and difficulty. Maybe we see it as premature. And Lord, we're asking that you might encourage and help us with thoughtfulness and help us with um, big-heartedness. Help us to grow in love as we grow in grace. Help us to not be Christians who um, preach sermons like this and only sermons like this to people who are hurting. Help us to share these truths. At the same time, Lord, help us to bear one another's burdens, to have fellowship even in suffering. Ultimately, that means we have fellowship with Christ. Lord, give us a day that exalts you. Give us lives that exalt you. And may we have a sureness about our lives knowing that you are sovereign and you are in control and working providentially. Thank you for your spirit and all that he does for us. In Jesus' name, amen.